Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our live Dhamma session, Wednesday. I'm here to, to talk about the Dhamma and to answer questions about the Dhamma. And I'm joined again with by Olivia, Chris, and Max, who are here to help answer or ask the questions and moderate the questions and moderate the session. So I'll give a short talk and then we'll get into questions. You're welcome to post questions in the chat. In the beginning portion, you're also welcome to post other things in the chat, but once we get into the question and answer session, the only thing we'll allow in the chat are questions. So just sit back, close your eyes, get into a meditation posture and frame of mind, and join us in our study and practice of the Dhamma. So tonight's talk is on essence. In in a worldly sense we use this word to describe that which is important, that which is a requirement necessary. When we say time is of the essence, well yes, that's a good good saying. The Buddha said, don't let the moment pass you by. Time is of the essence. So clearly there are levels of importance some things are essential, some things are not. We hear this a lot lately in regards to the pandemic situation. Essential services. We have to treat essential services differently. And this makes it clear that there are some things that are more important than others. And we consider that we consider life to be incredibly important, most important perhaps. Life is most important, so governments are shutting down econ the economy, shutting, closing down the borders, making things very uncomfortable, inconvenient. Removing a lot of the uh, services, shutting down many aspects of our life, even, even to some extent limiting access to education. Why? Because life is more important. We have to protect people's lives. We have to as a collective. And I, I think that accords with Buddhism because life as a human being is rare. We have this rare opportunity to cultivate higher states of mind. Opportunity that dogs and cats and other animals don't have. Not to mention beings in hell or ghosts or any, any kind of non-mundane or non-human Uh, healthcare is of the essence. Healthcare workers are 
the other being taxed to the to the to the limit. I, w I wish to express my own great appreciation for healthcare workers in this time, people who care and whose lives and livelihoods are are at risk, whose lives who put their lives at risk and their their livelihoods are risky, and who are. Well, forced to engage in dangerous activities during this time. A lot of, a lot of healthcare workers have died from the pandemic. My appreciation for the caring and the concern, and an understanding of how essential it is to help people live their lives. There's great merit in that helping of others. There's great goodness in it. And from a Buddhist perspective, there's something to be remarked here that a lot of the things that are shut down, limited, are things that make it clear that we do really know what's not important. And it would be a Buddhist thing to ask yourself further. If it's not important, is it really worth my time? Is there a way I can rise above it to, to purify my, my existence on earth, to, to, to purify in the sense like, like to filter out the essence? What is the es essence of life? Wouldn't I be better if I only did the best? Why, why settle for silver or bronze when there's gold? If you could make it all gold, wouldn't you want to replace the bronze and the silver with the gold? And one thing we find in Buddhism about what is essential before we get into what is actually considered essential in Buddhism is that it goes quite a bit farther and and takes a, a radical turn when considering what is essential and what is unessential. Because ultimately we we never as a society, as beings caught up in worldly affairs, we never go far enough to understand what is truly essential. Life actually isn't essential. Life actually isn't the essence. Death isn't the end. And putting aside life and death, all of the many things that we care about, worry about, are afraid of. None of them are very meaningful either, or even less meaningful. There's so many things that we 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 cry over, we rage over, worry, panic over. Things we strive for, cling to, hold to, believe in, that have no meaning and no purpose, are, have no essence to them. We think of our relationships with others, our our lives as worldly beings our houses and our cars and our jobs and our mortgages. How devastating it is to lose these things, let alone how, how, how life-shattering it is to lose a loved one, a parent, a child, a husband, a wife. It can devastate a person. And we remember 
Buddha's words to Bhattacharya, he said, this suffering, this mourning, this sorrow, this lamentation, this, it's, it's over something that's minuscule in comparison to the truth of reality, the truth of infinity. He said, the tears you've cried over a lost husband, a lost child, a lost wife, a lost mother, a lost father, the tears that you've cried are greater than all the waters and all the oceans in the world. More tears than that. That's how long samsara is. Space and time. Space and time. What, what, these two simple things make everything else irrelevant. All of our goals and ambitions, all of our possessions and attachments and desires and aversions. We're like ants. Could you imagine being a being? Imagine what the angels think when they look, the devas think when they look down on earth. There's a story about an angel who passed away. Uh, she was married to a she a female angel, female deva, ma married to a male, male deva. And she passed away in the morning one day. She just, her life ended. And she was born as a human being. Born into a good family, given away in marriage to a good man. Lived for 60 years, but remembered being, an, being a deva. And so, from the time she could act independently, she spent all of her time at the monastery, giving alms to the monks and listening to the Dhamma. And every time she gave, uh, she gave alms or, or, or dedicated some good thing she did, she would say, May I be with my my husband in a future life, in, in my next life. In my next life, may I be reunited with my husband. I can't remember how it ended, but the monks were sitting around talking about, this woman is amazing. Her, her attachment to her husband is incredible. I mean, he's a good guy, a good man and everything, but why? I can't remember if they were told or how they found out or if they did find out, but the truth was she just wanted to get back to her, her angel, her deva husband. And so at the age of 60 or 70, she passed away. And because of all the good deeds she did, she was born again in heaven. In the afternoon of the same day where she had died. So her husband, her, her deva husband, goes out in the afternoon and sees her coming in from the garden or wherever. And he says, oh, I missed you this morning. Where'd you go? She said, oh, I, I, I passed away. I was born a human being, spent 67 years, had kids and everything. And uh, I just I just died. And I'm back here, born again as, any, as a deva through all my good deeds. And the male deva was, was shocked and just shaken. And he said, that's how short a human being's life is? It's only only one day here? He said, wow, they must be, considering how short their lives is, how little time they have, they must be rushing to do good deeds and, and to work hard. They must be so focused. They must not let anything distract them from from goodness, because they have such a little, such little time that they must be focused on what is really essential, right? Well, we think that as human beings as well. If, if someone told you you only had a month to live, right? We have these pose these questions, and for people who know they only have a month to live, their life 
their outlook, their perspective changes radically. They become more focused on what is essential. But this woman, the, the deva said, the female deva said, it's not at all like that. They're they're negligent. They do nothing. They 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 they're just caught up in worldly and mundane carnal pleasures, not realizing that they're there that death is very close. Not focused on what is essential. So what is essential? Well, we could say the Dhamma is essential, right? You know, the answer is going to be the Bud Buddhism is an essential thing. What the Buddha taught, that's essential. But you can also say that in the Dhamma, in the Buddha's teaching, there are only some parts of it that are essential, that are the essence. And so it's not to say that all the other things the Buddha taught and a full Buddhist life isn't a great thing and, and there's no benefit that there's great benefit to all those things to all parts of the Buddha's teaching but the essence and the essence of life the essence of the, of the holy life the religious life the religious quest for liberation has five things these are called the Sara Dhamma one day Ananda was out he came back from alms and he saw some naked ascetics in the Jain tradition. But these naked ascetics he saw were different. They had a cloth in front of them covering their private parts. It was covering their bowl. They had their bowl, alms bowl, out in front of them and then they had a cloth over it that went down and kind of obscured or covered their, their private parts. And he said, oh, you guys are, you guys are good. At least you cover your front. And he said, oh no, and one of them said, oh no, we're not doing that to cover our front. We're doing that to stop flies from getting into our food because uh, if, a f if a fly fell in and then we accidentally ate it, we would be, con we would be guilty of murder. You know, if bugs fall in, or I think it was even if dust mites, you know, it means you can't even see if they get in there, then you're going to be in trouble. And th the giant ascetics, they eat out of their hands, or I saw one was eating out of his hands, and they have to they have to s move the rice around to make sure there's no living beings in it. In case they ate one accidentally, that would be murder in the Jain tradition. So Ananda heard this and well, was disappointed. He went back to find the Buddha, and he told the Buddha this, and the Buddha taught him this verse. He said, ah, these people... Asare saramatino sare ja saradasino te sare nadiga chanti michango charasam sangapa which means they see what is essential as not essential they consider what is they consider what is non-essential as essential they see what is essential as non-essential they mix them up not seeing They, uh, they, these people, never come to what is essential, never reach to what is essential, being consumed by wrong thought, wrong inclination. Micha gochara, oh no, being consumed by uh, the wrong pasture. a cow who goes to the wrong pasture and doesn't get any grass barking up the wrong tree you can say so the five and then he, the, the five saradhammas are sila ethics ethics of course is the base of the holy life spiritual life samadhi or concentration focus because when you're when you're ethical and ethical down to the every movement you make being mindful, then you become focused. This is where the focus comes in. A person who is focused on what is essential. That focus is a part of the essence. 
Panya wisdom. Because once you're focused on what's important and focused in the right way, properly, focused on reality, focused on moments of experience as they arise and cease, once you once you do that you start to see clearly of course but there's no secret as to how wisdom arises in buddhism when you look you see when you see you know seeing knowing and seeing this is the goal of the buddha's teaching Number four is vimutti. Vimutti, well, sorry, so seeing seeing and knowing and seeing isn't the goal, actually. It's the goal of the practice, and the, the, the point of knowing and seeing is liberation. Why do we want wisdom? How could there be anything more important than wisdom? What's more important than wisdom is the freedom that comes from wisdom. And freedom does come from wisdom. It doesn't come from hard work or concentration, focus. It comes from seeing clearly. Point being that all of our attachments and clingings and the prisons we put ourselves in, they all come from delusion, ignorance, lack of the clarity to see things as they are. And number five, vimutti jnana dasina, knowledge and vision of freedom. It isn't actually essential to know and, and see that you're free, but it's a part of the essence because there's no way you can avoid it, of course, because it's seeing clearly. And you see clearly, you know that you're seeing clearly. When you're free, you know that you're free. In fact, the further you go on the path, the more clear your progress becomes, the more clear you become about how, how far you've come. The beginning meditators who can be quite confused and unsure about how far they've gone because they're still very much in the dark about how the mind works. So they do the exercises often following blindly hoping that somehow magically good things will come. But eventually, the, as the meditator starts to really understand how mindfulness works, why it works, and what it actually uh, does, uh, they begin to open their eyes and they're able to see their progress. They're able to see the quality of their minds more clearly. But that's it. The Buddha said, when you're free, you know you're free. There's nothing more you have to do. This is the essence. And, and the important point here is that, that everything else is unessential. All of the things we worry about, even things that it's so, we're so sure, it's so uh, well understood that these things are essential. Even those things are not really essential. Even our livelihood, even having enough food to eat. If you don't get enough food to eat, some people find that devastating. I, I, I didn't I didn't have enough food to eat. It's just crushing. If you don't have any food, well you don't eat. And it isn't the end of the world. And it isn't the most important thing. And if you're dying, if you're sick and dying, or if you're sick and disabled in this way or that way, or if you have mental illness or mental despair or depression, none of those things, even the mental condition, none of those things are the most important. The most important is your cultivation of wisdom, your liberation from clinging to all of the things that we hold on to as essential. In, in essence, 
the, the most essential thing is to cease to consider anything in the world essential. Free yourself from clinging to anything. Sabe dhamma nalanga saya. All dhammas indeed are not worth clinging to. So, just some thoughts on what is essential. Now on to question and answer. If you have questions, I'm here to answer them. Why is mindfulness difficult to sustain? So mindfulness is a momentary thing. We're born and die every moment. That's how reality works. Because we're born every moment, our practice occurs every moment. And mindfulness isn't something you can you can sustain. Mindfulness is something you always have to engage. This is why the noting, why the repetition as we're repeatedly engaging. The, the past moment where you engaged is gone. It's the only benefit there is the cultivation of the habit of engaging. But you have to cultivate that habit. It requires energy and effort to repeatedly engage. So it's difficult to sustain because you're not engaging. In the beginning, there's going to be so many other inclinations in the mind that you'll be lucky if you can engage once in a while. And so you should be content with that content with engaging whenever you can. Like right now, when you ask this question, take the time to also engage in mindfulness. Asking questions like this is good. Or asking questions like this is good because it makes you think about things like being mindful. And as a result, you're more likely to engage your mindfulness. Why do thoughts come while meditating? Well, like everything else, thoughts have causes and conditions. And so because of those causes and conditions, they come. They don't uh, go on break. Uh, they don't go on break just because you've decided to meditate. Meditation isn't actually a thing. It doesn't exist. It's a convention. We say, I'm meditating now. It doesn't, your, your thoughts don't say, oh, okay, well we'll, well, we'll take a break. We'll leave you alone. That's not how it works. This is part of the nature of non-self. You don't get to decide when you think. How can one strengthen determination? Habit. The more you engage it, the more strong it becomes. I have felt that noting seeing or thinking has implied a purposeful sense of control and have started to note not trying to hear or see when noting my experience to be mindful of non-self. Is this okay? 
that's very much not okay. So mindful of non-self is not a thing. You can't be mindful of non-self. You're mindful of experiences as they are. Seeing doesn't have any implied purposeful sense of control, though um, through delusion and ignorance our ordinary inclination is to try to control and um, you know, possess and identify and, and have all sorts of other reactions or extrapolations of things, extra baggage associated with experiences. There's nothing in seeing or thinking that has anything to do with control. It's a description of what is happening. Are you seeing? Then, then that is an accurate description. Does seeing involve control? No. Seeing is just seeing. And describing it is just describing it. The purpose of describing it is to remind you. It is what it is. Not trying to hear or see is, is, is about control. When you say not trying to hear or see, you're 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 you're. Uh, well, it depends what you what mean what you mean by not trying. I don't know. It's highly convoluted, and there's no rationale I can see for doing that. The Buddha said, "When you see, see it as it should just be seeing." He said things like, "When when walking, you know, see it clearly as walking." When going, you should know, I'm going. Sometimes I worry about what happens after I die. Should I be worrying about this? Worry is not wholesome or beneficial. You can be what we might call concerned or um, cognizant, I guess, aware of the urgency. As I said, the, our lives are short, and being aware of that and got conscious of it and allowing that to dictate your actions is very useful. And we're not going to live very much longer, all of us. It's a very short time in the face of eternity. All human beings will be gone, obliterated from the universe, and it'll have just been a blink. It'll have been a blink of an eye in the, for the universe. After all, human beings are wiped out, and there's no human beings anymore. It'll have just been a blink. All this plastic that's piling up in the ocean we're worried about, I'm not worried about it. It's all going to be gone. I mean, there's something about speaking of that and things like that. It shows how far off track we've gotten, our waste, our greed, and so on. These are bad signs for sure, but they're not meaningful or important. So, um, but, but more to the point, worry is just not useful at all. So being cognizant and alert and conscious of reality, that's very useful. But you have to stop it there. And the, only, the way to stop it there, the only thing you have to do is to just say worried, worried. You don't even have to, you don't have to make a conscious decision about whether you should worry or not worry. What you have to start to see is that you don't have a choice. There's nothing you can do to just say, I'm never going to worry again. All you can do is see the worry clearly. And as a result of seeing the, wor the worry clearly, it stops by itself. It just never, it just doesn't happen. That's how you free yourself from worry. And you should, because worry is unbeneficial, it's harmful. But you don't have to take that to mean anything. You just have to look and see, and you'll see that it is harmful. And because of that, you'll just naturally incline away from getting worried or you'll naturally lose the inclination to get worried
should we calm and relax first in our meditation? I find myself not relaxed or calm, like if I do breathing meditation. Oh, I know what was wrong. I was using the wrong mic. Sorry about that. Can you say that again? I, I'm sorry, I, just, I think I just uh, made some loud noises. Should be on a better microphone now. Should we calm and relax first in our meditation? I find myself not relaxed or calm, like I like if I do breathing meditation. So there's no need to be calm or relaxed. There is a need to see clearly. And th there are different approaches, let's put it that way. You can calm yourself down and get relaxed first. And once you've done that, then start to cultivate insight. But a more streamlined approach a less uh, comfortable or pleasant approach is to just begin to practice mindfulness to just go at it and so it's not actually it's not actually inhibiting for you to not be relaxed or calm it's just unpleasant but that is itself an important lesson I mean ultimately even if you do practice being peaceful and calm first, you're going to eventually have to let go of it. You're going to eventually have to give it up. Do you feel energy, virya, when you are noting? Is it energy or virya that allows you to keep noting the whole day? You may feel energy, but the feeling of energy is not the virya that you need. Um, you can feel it. If you'd feel it, you should note that feeling. feeling. But the virya should be just a natural, uh, natural energy should come to the point where you just don't feel tired anymore. You don't feel overwhelmed and like you need to take a break from anything. It's a natural energy. Bante, we are at the end of the questions that need an answer. However, there are more questions. Yeah, no, go ahead. I've got the right mic now. I think people can hear me now. How can we decide which difficulties we should fight and which should be left for a different path? We shouldn't fight difficulties anyway. We should strive to see things not as not as difficulties, but as experiences. If you, if you see something as a difficulty, you might fight it, or a problem, let's say, you might try to solve it. But if you see things as experiences, then there's no, no longer any need to fix or fight.
Can Satipatthana meditation help to be reborn in heaven? So being born in heaven is a it's a result of the last moment when you die and that can come about because of many the, the going to heaven can come about because of many different causes something you've done in this life that was heavenly divine you know, really wholesome and good and that can involve acts of charity or kindness humility respect etc you know, all sort any sort of good thing but it very much and and i think even more commonly comes about because of a state of purity of mind so if you die with a pure mind, you're much more likely to go to a pure place. And so since mindfulness, of course, involves that purity, then the clarity of mind when you die is going to be very powerful. And I would suggest it's much more effective at purifying the the result of death, purifying the the resultant rebirth. When I feel concentrated, my body will do odd things. Sometimes my face will twitch very rapidly too rapidly to note each sensation. How does one note when the senses are quickly presenting like this? You don't have to note every moment, just note feeling, feeling. So odd things is, a, is, an is an indication of seeing impermanence. It's a sort of a good sign, starting to see impermanence, unpredictable nature of things. Are things that we think are out of our control, like specific behaviors or reactions, really just an illusion or an ego concept as well? I don't understand the question. Behaviors or reactions, are, how could they be an illusion? Behaviors and reactions, those are real. I'm wondering if this question also is asking if the out-of-controlness is an illusion and that we're actually controlling those behaviors. Hmm. Well... I'll put it to you this way. Find out for yourself. Cultivate mindfulness and see the truth. Maybe stop thinking so much too. <laughs> sounds sounds like uh, it's a question that is a bit curious, curiosity based, theory based. You see, you're, you're, if you if you want answers to questions like these, just look and you'll see. It's much simpler maybe than you think. What is the difference between sila and right effort? Sila is the abstention from things. It's the restraint. Effort is involved there. 
But effort is energy, effort is the get up and go. Those are two different things. Oh, but right effort as it's taught about preventing uh, unwholesomeness and yeah, that's a good question. But it's the effort to do those things, right? The prevention. So so the point is that in order to do, in order to practice you need all these things all together. But the sila aspect is one thing and the virya aspect is another. The virya aspect is the effort to do all these things. And the point the Buddha is making there in the right effort section is there are some kinds of effort that are not right. If it isn't one of those four things, it's not right effort. But uh, the sila part is the, the abstention part. You see, samapadana, it's not just abstaining, it's also doing, cultivating wholesomeness, which isn't sila, right? So it's just the way the Buddha describes it, includes sila, the abstention in there. Or the, well, not even abstention, the um, prevention and keeping away, guarding against. Is it good practice to stop directed thinking and evaluation as much as possible? It's good practice to note when you're thinking and to see thinking just as thinking. The problem isn't the directed thinking, it's the, uh, we might say, intoxication with it. We like to think or we're caught up in the thought. We're pulled in by the thoughts, and it's that part that's not very mindful. I have a severe porn addiction, and I have tried everything, but it doesn't seem to go away. What's your advice? So the path starts elsewhere. That's something, put aside sex and, and craving and, and all of that. That's not something that you you can get rid of until you start to see things in a new way. You, know, you have to work on view first, work on perception, try to see things, try to understand what's going on when you talk about having a severe porn addiction, because you don't have a severe porn addiction. That's just a way of describing it. Trying to get things to go away is is obviously not working, and it's not the path. Try to see things clearly as they are. Just try to work out what's going on there. And don't have as your goal getting rid of the porn habit. Have it as a, a better clarity of mind, seeing things as they are. Because even, like, even sotapanas can still get married and have sex and, and enjoy worldly things. They they know deep down that they're not, these are not the satisfying these are not the the answer but craving is very hard to it takes a long time to overcome so so redirect your attention don't be too concerned with that try to focus on seeing things clearly and seeing your porn habit clearly it means seeing the desire the the craving the feeling even just the seeing of of the pictures, you know. Try and break it apart and to see what, what's really there. It's very hard, to, it's impossible to cling to something when you see it clearly, when you break it apart into what's actually happening, what's actually there. What does a person do if they have severe homicidal thoughts or the passion to harm things? They're just thoughts. You know, don't give them names like homicidal. They're just thoughts. Homicidal would be, I mean, sorry, I just mean don't, don't be too set on labeling them as this or that kind of thought. Try and see them just as thoughts. 
not saying that they're not homicidal, that's just a technical word, but don't give them life like that. Just thoughts are thoughts, just see them as thinking. There's not a problem with thoughts, the problem is if you want to do those things, the problem is the anger and the cruelty and so on. And you have to see that as different from the actual thought. So the passion to harm things, it's just passion, try and see it just as passion and then you won't connect it, connect it to the need to do something about it. What is a good goal for the day that I should set? I can't tell you how to live your life. I mean, do some meditation every day. Have we really gotten gotten no, no more meditation questions? Maybe the, maybe all the meditators left because they couldn't hear me. I think that you were heard, Bonte. Well, you guys could hear. You guys got the right mic. You could hear me fine, but on uh, YouTube because I have another mic that I just didn't realize was turned on. Alright, why don't we just end it there? There's no more people needing help. I think there's one more question that could be asked. Okay, we'll go for one more. What are the long-term effects of noting meditation? I don't see it up on screen. There we are. Long-term effects of noting on meditation. That's a curious, curious phrasing. I mean, the noting is the meditation, so what are the long-term effects? You get it as a skill. You're able to recognize things. You're able to catch things and, and cut cut off the power of things to instigate reactions. So you 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 preempt the reaction. Instead of saying this is bad, this is good, this is me, this is mine, you you get in the way and you say, This is this. It is what it is. That's all it is. No more, no less. All right, that's all for tonight. Apologies for the technical difficulties. I'm, I was tapping on the mic for a while, and why is this making noise? This mic is on. Must have made some people have to note hearing, hearing. Thank you, Bhante. Thank, thank you all for thanks for your help, guys, and thank you all for coming out. Hopefully, get it right next time. Have a good night.